if you've not ever been here, uh, when when um, our missionaries from the UA have been here, you have you're in for a treat. Uh, the 9 a.m. was just a powerful time. Um, but me and Vance were actually kin to each other. Uh, my mom, his mom, first cousins, right? So I don't even know what that makes us. What second, third cousins? Like I know in Alabama, if you're first cousin, you can still get married. But uh, <laughs> he's from Alabama, so, <laughs> so I can give him that. But he's a Tennessee fan. We 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 could now. His daughters, I don't know about. Uh, but man, and one of the, one of the cool things is, is mom and dad actually part of this part of this church began supporting them as missionaries over 24, 25 years ago, and you'll get to hear some of that. But guys, I, I want you to tune in because this will not be your standard what you expect from a missionary, and uh, uh, it, it's a powerful word. So I want you to make feel welcome. Vance Massingale. Yeah. Good morning. May the peace of our Lord Jesus be upon you. Uh, it is a joy to be with you. Sorry, I got entangled up here. It's hard to wear a dress, so uh, uh, today I just want to, uh, I, I want to carry in the girls to come up here. I know I think we did this last time we were here, but uh, someone in the first, in the mornings, in the nine o'clock service mentioned that they almost left when they saw Carrie and the girls dressed this way, and I think that's a very common feeling. And it's a thing that, that which, one of the reasons that we actually wear these clothing. I mean, actually, this is much cheaper to have made than a suit. And uh, so I, I, I mean, it's much more comfortable than a suit. It's one another reason that I wear it. But when you see people dress, especially the way Carrie, Leandra, and Kendra are dressed, how does it make you feel? And, and, and I, I want you not to respond, but to be honest with yourself. Because I know here in Tennessee, uh, actually I was born in Chattanooga, most of my family, Saudi Daisy, Dayton area, I mean if you meet a Massengill that has a spelling the same as mine, I'm related, uh, Luther from Chattanooga who did the TV and radio, that's my great uncle, that was my great uncle, he's in heaven now, or hopefully he's in heaven, uh, he, he never sent me any mission offering, so I'm not sure, uh, but uh, you know, you, you don't see it that often, but even if you see it on the news, be early honest with you, how does it make you feel when you see a woman dressed this way. I think very common feelings that we often have as Americans, because I think sometimes we allow our nationality to become a little bit stronger than our faith in Christ, uh, to overwhelm us. And I mean, do you feel anger? Do you feel resentment? Fear was the, was the comment that the, uh, uh, the sister mentioned earlier today. Uh, hatred. And then ask yourself, do you really think that's what the Lord Jesus would want you to feel? When he came to this world and he gave up his life and he died on the cross for women who look just like this. And one of the reasons is, is that Jesus knows and remembers what you and I very, very easily forget. That behind every veil of every woman in the Arab world, there's a person that Jesus Christ came, gave his life and died for. And those women are, to him are not terrorists, they're not, he doesn't, they're not people to hate or people to be bitter or people to even fear, they're people to love. And so I want to encourage you the next time you see a woman wearing a veil over her face, instead of allowing those feelings to rise up, allow the compassion of our Lord Jesus to come up and pray for those people. Pray for their salvation and their redemption because that's exactly what Jesus would want you to feel. Now, if that made you feel guilty, that's kind of the point. So, yeah. it is a joy to be with you. Uh, I've been just overwhelmed today. I mean, a lot of it, Connie not being here, uh, it's just kind of hard for me because uh, my whole life, every, almost every birthday until I was probably in my mid-20s, I got a birthday card from, from Connie because we share the same birthday, and she always sent me a card, and her and my mom grew up together. I sh shared earlier that... Uh, my mother was telling me this week that her and Connie used to go in the outhouse and have church together. 
uh, when they were kids. And I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> we let COVID stop us and they're selling, you know, they're having church in an outhouse. Uh, but, you know, also I was kind of reflecting on how the church has changed. And I don't even see that as a bad thing because I think I, I know why Ken and Connie started the church, their purpose, and living things change. And if it, something doesn't change, it usually means it's dead and that the, how the church has changed and grown. And I'm so proud of Kelly and Denise and how they've taken it and just uh, it's just really a joy. And I, I do want to thank this church. This church has been supporting us 25 years. Uh, there's only one church that equals that length of time, and that's our uh, home church in, in Cleveland. And so I, I just really want to thank you and the opportunity to be here. I, I, I kind of, we moved from Tennessee to Alabama when I was five years old. I guess my parents were deported or something, I don't know. Uh, but you know, my dad's job took us to Alabama, and actually I'm from, I grew up in Arab, Alabama, and I'm not joking, it's A-R-A-B. Uh, but I, I kind of regret that because I didn't get to grow up with Kelly and Chris and Casey and you know, that I, I would have known them so much more if I'd had that opportunity to grow up in Tennessee. I don't know most of my family. Actually, if you meet some of my family in Dayton, they're not going to know who I am, so don't worry about it because uh, we weren't ever really around each other. But it is just a joy to be here. Uh, this year, we did not set up a table because of COVID. Actually, it's kind of unexpected that we're even in America. Uh, the reason that we returned, the primary reason was that my mother uh, was diagnosed with double hit lymphoma. Uh, earlier this year, and we came back to kind of try to help out during her chemotherapy and her treatment, uh, which has been very, very hard on us and her, and, and her especially uh, during this time. Uh, we haven't really went to a lot of churches together. We haven't went to a lot of churches, period, just trying to care for her. Also, with, with someone with cancer, you have to be very careful. I mean, even a bad cold uh, can, can be very detrimental to them because of their immune system. And so it's been a little bit of a different time for us. We returned on July 21st. We will go back to the UAE on January 13th. Lord willing, we will stay there for at least two more years, uh, depending on my mother's health, also our mission budget. Uh, but, you know, the churches that we have visited before, I have mostly went alone, or sometimes Kendra has joined me. But when we wanted to come to Watts Bar, we we're like, no, we have to do that church together because this church has meant so much to us over our time in ministry. Now, we did on the back table there, we did set up a little form where you can sign up to receive our email newsletters. Uh, we have our new missionary magnet, which just has us. You put it on your refrigerator. Thank God that you don't eat what I have to, something, you know, something like that. No, it's just a way to remember to pray for us. Yes, missionaries need money. Every ministry needs money. But ministry is not about money. Missions is not about money. Uh, if, you, if you give me money today, I will use it to buy a plane ticket, I will use it to live, I will use it to spread the gospel in, in that part of the world. But if you don't pray, your money does nothing. And those newsletters are so you know how to pray. The magnet is that you remember to pray. Because when you pray, mountains are moved, the Muslims receive Christ, things happen. And, and you know, in our part of the world, ministry is hard. And ministry is a little bit dangerous, but as you pray... It works, and I really want to encourage you that your prayers don't go in vain. Now, again, we're being live streamed, and I have to be a little careful. God is doing significant things in our part of the world, uh, things that I would love to share, but it's a thing of uh, there's people to be protected, including myself, and so it's a thing of just know that when you pray for that part of the world, it's not in vain. God's doing some incredible things. And also on that table, there is a bracelet. Now, I passed these out last time. In 2017, we had a meeting in Thailand in which people working in the, uh, in the Muslim world all came together. We had a conference trying to see that how we could collaborate together to be more effective in reaching uh, this part of the world for Christ. During this time, we felt the Holy Spirit speaking to us as a congregation, as over 2,000 delegates there, to start a prayer movement. And this bracelet is a development from, from our part of it to this. And on it, it says, pray for the Arab world in Arabic. It also prays for, it says pray for the Arab world in English, and then it says 10-10. What that means is the prayer movement is called the 10-10 movement, that we're praying for 10%, at least 10% of the Muslim world to come to Christ in the next 10 years. Now, we're in the third year of that movement, and we're already seeing significant impact. So if you take one of these bracelets, the only commitment that we ask you make, five minutes a week. That's nothing. Okay, Five minutes a week praying that 10% of the Muslim world come to Christ in the next 10 years. The colors of the bracelet are simply the colors of the flag in the country in which we live. 
but this is just a way that you can remember. And you can take more than one because they do wear out. Uh, so if you want to take one, please feel free. Okay, also you have received the Church of God Faith Promise. Uh, this is just a way that you can, some people, they feel better when they make a commitment, and this is just a way that you can do this. Now, I do want to point out it's a faith promise. It is not a pledge. A pledge is when you, actually, you're right, you're signing a contract, and you can actually be legally responsible and to fulfill a pledge. A faith promise is when you say, I, I, I am promising by faith, as God provides I will provide for your ministry. And you can fill that out and put it in the offering if you'd like. Uh, if you don't, if you, if you fill this out, you lose your job, something happens, the Church of God is not going to send here, people here to break your legs or you know things like that. It's just as faith. Now, you don't have to do this to give to us every month because whether you fill this out or you don't, the best way to give to us is through your local church. If you try to send a check in our, in our name to Cleveland, uh, and you don't do everything just perfectly, we will not receive that money. It will go into a general fund uh, that the World Mission uses for other things. But if you put it in your church envelope, you put Middle East, Massengills, whatever, this church will then send it the correct way, and we're sure to get it. And in the Church of God, we get 100% of what you give. And what you give. The church doesn't take out anything for administration costs, anything like that. Church of God missionaries receive 100%. Now, we do have to raise 100%. I even have to raise my Christmas bonus, so, uh, which makes it not a bonus, but that's another thing. I'm being, I'm being live streamed, so I need to shut up. Okay, so it is a joy to be here. When I come back, it's always kind of hard to know what to say and what to share. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit, for those of you who, who might not have been here last time, about what we do. We live in the United Arab Emirates in the city of Sharjah, just north of Dubai. Uh, we chose this location very strategically, but I am not called to the Muslim world. I am not called to Arabs. I am not called to the UAE. I am called to fulfill the Great Commission. I do not believe the calling of God is to a place, and I do not believe the calling of God is to a purpose, I mean to a, to a people. I believe the calling of God is to a purpose. Many years ago, as I was you know, becoming a new Christian, so about 28 years ago now, uh, I learned something. I read in the Bible that there's a big, broad path that leads to destruction. Basically, it leads to hell. And that many, many will take it. And then I learned that there is a narrow path that leads to life, heaven, and few will find it. And as I looked at that and I studied that and I began to study about missiology and I began to learn that in the world today, anywhere from 32 to 42% of the world has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ before. Now, I say 32 to 42 because it, it depends on what statistics you look at, but also, too, because the number is growing, not reducing. Because of birth rates, especially in these parts of the world, the number of people who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, never heard what Jesus has done for them, is increasing. And so what that means to me, you know, I, I can't do anything about the broad path that leads to destruction. Jesus said that. Basically, Jesus said, more people are going to hell than going to heaven. That's what Jesus said. Now, I can't do anything about that. I can't, I can't do about anything about the person who rejects Christ over and over and over again. I can't. But when I learned that there are millions and millions, in fact, over a billion people walking down the broad path to destruction who don't even know that there's a narrow path to life. That I can't live with. I can't live with the fact that they don't even know. And people think that missions is about finding lost people. Missions isn't about finding lost people because you don't have to find lost people. All you have to do is go outside. Lost people are everywhere. In fact, lost people may be in this room right now. You don't have to find them. They're everywhere. Missions isn't about that. Missions is about providing people with access to the gospel. And so what I want to do is go to the broad path to of destruction and let the people that don't know there's a narrow path, just there's a different way. There's a person who came here and died on the cross, and if you will just turn around, you can get on that narrow path that leads to life. Now, it's true, they may keep walking down the broad path of destruction, but now they have access to the narrow path, and that's what missions is about. That is why we are in the Middle East, because 80% of those who've never heard the gospel before live in the Middle East and North Africa where we're working. And that is why we are there. But also, too, 
you know, while I want to share about all that, when I came back to America, I'll be honest. I, now, let me say this. I love my country. I wore the uniform. I have fought for America. I love my country. But I don't recognize her anymore. I, I, it, it's changed so much. And, and we have a little bit of advantage because we don't live here. I mean, it's like, you know, if you see yourself every day, you don't really notice when you're gaining weight or losing weight. I mean, I'm, I'm sure during the pandemic, most of you probably lost weight because you're just sitting at home praying and fasting the whole time, and you don't really have time to eat. Okay, I'm being a little facetious. I know that a lot of people gain weight. But, you know, you don't really notice it. But if a person during this pandemic didn't see you for six or seven months, and then they come and they see you, like, wow, you know, you really gained or lost weight. Now, in my part of the world, we're a little bit nicer. If you gain weight, they'll say, oh, you've gotten much stronger since I've seen you last. Uh, but I will remind you, men, that's still not a good thing to say to your wife. Your wife don't really want to hear that either. But that's kind of the advantage that I have, because when I return back to America after two years, the differences are so much more pronounced to me, and it, it affected me so much that my sermon really became more something I want to share with you. But I do want to warn you of a couple of things. One, where I live and I work, if you preach less than an hour, the people think you're not even saved, okay? Now, Kelly told me last night that he preaches about 45 minutes. I don't know what that means, but I'm going to try to convert to kind of his, his style of doing things. But, you know, also, too, in my part of the world, we can be a little bit harder. You know, we can preach the Bible with a little more, you know, it, it's called a sword, uh, not a feather. And so, you know, at times it will cut, at times it will hurt a little bit. And so today, I might offend you. Now, if I do that, you have to forgive me, because if you don't, you will go to hell, all right? So just be gracious. Share the grace that you have been given by our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? I don't want to offend, but sometimes the Word of God will offend. Every time we come back as missionaries, we hear this word. The word that you see on the screen. We hear it all the time. Oh, missionaries sacrifice so much. Missionaries. And what they're talking about is we give up Walmart and McDonald's. All right? And actually, you don't give up McDonald's. McDonald's is like every country but North Korea. All right? But it's a thing of, you know, that we give up all these things. Now, in my life as a missionary, I've been a missionary 25 years. In my life, I've always deflected that. I've always kind of like, oh, we know we don't do, you know, we don't give up anything. We don't really do any of those kind of things. Because I'm afraid of two things on this planet. I'm afraid, first of all, I'm afraid of preaching something that's not true. Now, I am standing in what I believe is kind of like the voice piece of God. When you're proclaiming the word of God, when you're a preacher or a teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when you stand in the pulpit or in the classroom or wherever it may be, you are speaking on God's behalf to another individual, and I take that very seriously. And it's a thing of I never want to say something that's not true. And that's, I've spent a lot of time and a lot of effort on education ensuring that I will not say something that's not true. And, and I'm sure, you know, there's times people make mistakes, but I don't ever want to do it intentionally. I don't even want to do it accidentally if I can avoid it. But the second thing I'm really afraid of, the most thing I'm afraid of, is taking God's glory from him. Okay? And sometimes when people say, well, you're, you sacrifice, I felt like I was stealing God's glory, and I never, ever, ever want to do that. I mean, I think that's one of the greatest sins we can commit is taking God's glory and claiming it for ourselves. But after I've thought about the word sacrifice and I thought about what it means and I thought about it, I, I begin to think sacrifice is an appropriate word. Now, I know in America we don't like the word sacrifice. We like the word comfort and lazy boy and things like that. But sacrifice is an appropriate word for Christians. In fact, our entire faith is built on sacrifice. The Old Testament and the New Testament are founded. Their foundation is in sacrifice. If you look at the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament has, is circled around the, the, the ceremonial acts of sacrificing of animals. And Jesus comes in the New Testament. He fulfills the Old Testament sacrificial system in his own life when he dies on the cross. Now, many times when we look at the Old Testament and we, we talk about Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, we think that means the Old Testament passed away. 
But that's not what Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament means. It means he brought it to its fullest meaning. He brought it to its greatest truth. It doesn't mean that, oh, that's Old Testament, this is New Testament. That is an unbiblical concept because the Old Testament is just as much Bible as the New Testament. It just fulfills the other. It's at its greatest meaning. It's more important now than it was before Jesus came. And Jesus did that. But Jesus also tells us that after he leaves, sacrifice will continue. That our faith will be based in sacrifice. In fact, our practice of Christianity is based in sacrifice. We have three sacraments in the church of God. We have Holy Communion, we have water baptism, and we have foot washing. All three of those have a foundation in the thought of sacrifice. Communion is a time in which we come together and we have a memorial service. But it's the only memorial service in the world that remembers a person's death. Every other memorial service remembers a person's life. I mean, you know, when we have a, my, my grandfather, when he, you know, he, he was a big person in my life, I, when I remember him, if I have a service to remember him, I don't remember the day he died. I remember how he lived his life. But in, in communion, we're remembering how Jesus died and how he gave his life sacrificially on our behalf. Water baptism is a symbolic ceremony in which we have, in which we remember that we have sacrificed ourselves, we have died with Christ and resurrected to new life. Foot washing is when we take time in showing that I'm going to sacrifice what I want to serve my brothers and sisters in Christ. Everything we do is based in sacrifice. And Jesus told us that this idea, this life of sacrifice would continue for those who followed him. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves Take up their cross and follow me. Now, in my life, I've had the, either the honor or the curse of learning Greek. Okay? And I went to the Bible, and I went to the Greek text, and I look up the word must. Do you know what must means in Greek? Must. That's what it means, and that's why they translated it must. So if you want to follow Christ, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, Christ didn't ask for converts. Okay? Jesus didn't say, believe in me. He said, follow me. Be my disciple. Be like me. If we want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, if we want to be Christians, we must deny ourselves. But then in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, he says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So I went to the Greek and I looked up the word everything. Do you know what the word everything means in Greek? It means everything. Now think about that. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and you must give up everything to follow me. That is a life of sacrifice. Christianity is about sacrifice. Sacrifice is about giving. Giving is about love. The question is, who do you love enough to sacrifice for? That's the question. Amy Carmichael, a famous missionary uh, long, long ago, said that you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Sacrifice requires giving, giving of something to something that you love more than you love the thing that you're giving. Now, as an American, and as a, you know, I, I love my country, but sometimes we can be so funny, uh, we come up with these Bible reading programs. <laughs> I'm always saying it's funny that we have to come up with a reading program for a book, okay? And so, but we come up with all these reading programs, and in America, we have so, so many different reading programs. I've seen read the Bible in a year, read the Bible in six weeks, read the Bible in a month. I actually saw one on the internet that said read the Bible in a day, okay? Uh, I don't figure that one out. But I, a couple of years ago, I was going to try the one, read the Bible in a year. Now, I don't like these programs, not because you can't do them. If you like them, fine. I don't. That's one of the great things about Christianity is I don't have to be like you, and you don't have to be like me, okay? Because if I have to be like Kelly, I'm probably going to give it up. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But so I tried this program of reading the Bible through a year. But see, the problem when I read the Bible, I get stuck in areas. You know, I start reading along, and I start to see something that's just kind of fascinating and awesome, and I kind of get stuck there. And so I started in January, I started reading, and I got stuck in the book of Genesis, okay? And I got stuck specifically in the life of Abraham. 
And for the last two years, I've been studying about Abraham. And I'm just fascinated with the life of Abraham. I mean, it's just awesome. And if you haven't read in Genesis about Abraham, you need to really get into that and read it. And I come, and I feel like I can kind of relate to Abraham. Because in chapter 12 of Genesis, God asked Abraham to leave his home, to leave his place to a place he would show me. And I know what that's like. I've lived in six different countries. So I know what it's like to be asked to go to another place. And then Abraham is promised that I'm going to make you a father of a great nation and that through your seed, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now I think, wow, what would that have been like for Abraham to be promised that if you will just do what I ask you to do, I'm going to be, you're going to be the father of a great nation and through you the whole world basically is going to be blessed. Now, of course, he's talking about the coming of the Messiah, but it was a great thing for Abraham and it was so awesome. But the big thing I think that Abraham held on to was that coming of a child. Because to be a father of a great nation, you got to have a kid, right? And so later on, Isaac is born. The promise is fulfilled. Everything is great. He's a daddy. There's Isaac. I'm sure he was so proud. I mean, I know what it's like to have you know your kids, and you're so proud of them. I mean, I remember when my girls, Leander and Kendra, when they were really little, they would draw the ugliest pictures. I mean, it looked like they had eaten crayons and like threw up on the paper. Okay. But as a daddy, you're so proud of those. You put them on the refrigerator. You pass them out to people. And people are like, what is this? And, but it's just, you're the daddy. You're proud. And I'm sure that's the way Abraham was with Isaac. And the Bible tells us in chapter 22 that Abraham loved Isaac. Now, if you look at that in the Hebrew, it is rather strong emphasis. But then right after that, it says, and God tested Abraham. And we don't like that word about as much as we don't like the word sacrifice. But God tested Abraham. And when you look at that, why did God test Abraham? Because Abraham loved Isaac. And I think it was simply a test of Abraham, who do you love more? Isaac or me? Now, we don't like the word test, but whether we like it or not, God tests us. And you might not believe that God will test you. And if you don't, you probably haven't been a Christian very long. But I can promise you, God will test you. In fact, he tests you every month. Now, Pastor Kelly didn't ask me to say this. He didn't pay me to say this. He will test you every month. It's called the tithe. The tithe is simply a test. God asking you, do you love me more or money more? It is simply a test. Now, you can take that, do that with whatever you want, but that's a biblical concept. That a tithe is simply a test in which who do you love the most? And he gives it to us every month. But see, the thing about it is, when God tests Abraham, he wasn't trying to learn something about Abraham. Why? God knows everything. When God tests us, it's not for his benefit, it's for our benefit. Because he's trying to teach us something. He's trying to reveal truth to us. He's trying to show us something that perhaps we don't know about ourselves. Because in fact, the most difficult person on earth to get to know is yourself. And God is trying, he tests us to show us things about ourselves. And he was wanting to show Abraham a few things about himself. And the one, one of the things that it does when you, when you test those, when he tests us in trying to teach us things, and he asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, you think, well, what kind, of, what kind of test would that be to sacrifice my only child that I waited so many, many years for? But I think there's other things that Abraham was asked, being asked to sacrifice other than Isaac. In the sacrifice of Isaac, I think there's three specific things Abraham was being asked to give up of himself. And I'm going to talk about those a little bit. The first thing he was, asked, is he was being asked is his identity. Now think about Abraham's promise. Abraham had been promised, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And that through your seed, the nations of the whole world will be blessed. Now, I've been asked to do something by God. In fact, everyone in this room has been asked to be doing something by God. But if we're not careful, our identity will get so caught up in what God has asked me to do for him that I, have, I will forget about who God has asked me to be for him. Because let me say this, no matter what God's asked you to do, God is much more interested in what you're becoming than what you're doing. And so when he's asked Abraham to give up this, I mean, Abraham, father of a great nation. Now, I can imagine myself, if God had told me, Vance, you're going to be the father of a great nation. 
I would let my identity get caught up into that. In fact, I would probably get a bumper sticker made and put on the back of my car, Father of a Great Nation. And who knows, maybe Abraham, on the back of his camel, he had it written, Father of a Great Nation, blessing the whole world. I don't know, maybe he did. And so when he's being asked to sacrifice Isaac, you're being asked to sacrifice that identity. You're being, you know, he had become so identified in being the father of Isaac, the father of a great nation, that he's being asked to give that up for God. The second thing that he's being asked to give up is his dreams, what he loves. He loved Isaac. And I know every day he probably looked at Isaac as I look at my children thinking, what are they going to become? What are they going to do when they get older? I mean, when my daughters get married at the age of you know, 55 or 60, I'm going to take such pride in watching them get married if I'm still alive. But I know he had to take joy in that. And he's asked to be asked to give up what he loves, what he dreams about Isaac, the father of a nation, blessing the whole world. The third thing he's being asked to give up is his plans. He didn't promise, I'm going to be the father of a great nation. I'm going to bless the whole earth through my seed. God's got to do it this way. He has to do it through Isaac. There is no other way God can do it through Isaac. He, you know, God, if you make me kill him, the plan's gone. You can't ask me to do what you've asked me to do. Our ministry in the Middle East is based in John chapter 15. In fact... For the 28 years I have been in, in ministry, my ministry has been based on John chapter 15. Now, I, I have an education, yes, but I see the Bible as simple. I see Christianity as very simple, and I actually believe what the Bible says. I know there's a lot of people who don't, but I do. And when I was a young Christian, I read John chapter 15, and in John chapter 15, Jesus tells me that if I will abide in him, I will be fruitful. But if I don't abide in him, I will not be fruitful. And the word abide, depending on your translation, it might say dwell in, live in. But basically what it's talking about is that if I will spend extravagant amounts of time with Jesus, I will be fruitful. And what that means is if I will spend time every day in prayer, in Bible study, in, in fasting, in biblical meditation, in Bible reading with Christ, that my life will become fruitful. And what that is implying is the fruits of the Spirit. Because the only way we get to the fruits of the Spirit is spending time in God's presence. And then the Holy Spirit takes over and He works in us and He works with that time and He changes us to make us more like Jesus Christ. This is basically sanctification. And then that fruit of the Spirit helps me become better in everything that I do. In fact, I have found that if I will spend time with Jesus every day, not only does it make me a better missionary and a better pastor and a better teacher and preacher, it makes me a better husband, it makes me a better father, it makes me a better brother and sister of Christ, it makes me a better human being because I am becoming more like Jesus and less like me. But when you read through John chapter 15, there's one verse I don't like so much. Now, I'll be honest. Again, I'm a simple person. I see, I see things in the Bible I don't like. And in John, there's a verse we don't like. Now, it doesn't mean I don't believe it. It doesn't mean I won't obey it. It just means I'd prefer to go around it. I don't know if you've ever been reading the Bible and you, you hit a verse and it kind of sticks and you're like, oh, I don't like that one, let's go around. Now, I notice in America now, there's a lot of verses in the Bible that Americans don't like. Several of them in Romans. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, for those of you who didn't laugh, you haven't read Romans lately, have you? But verse number 2 in John chapter 15 it says, while every branch that does not bear fruit... Now, he just told me, if I will abide in him, I will be fruitful... While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So that means that if I abide in Christ and I become fruitful, then he will prune me. Now, we read that as Americans because most of us don't have vineyards. Most of us don't even have farms. And we just read right through that. But you see, I lived in Greece for a while, about four and a half years. And in Greece, they have vineyards everywhere and olive trees everywhere. That's almost the only plants they seem to have. And they, I, I watched a Greek farmer one day prune the branches of his grapevines. It is very, very violent. I mean, he would take that vine and just strip it of all the leaves. I mean, it was just almost naked when he got through. And then I read this in John chapter 15. That's what God's going to do to me. 
in order for me to bear more fruit. And over the last two years of our ministry, our family has felt the pruning of God. About a year, about, I guess about a year and a half ago, I was at a meeting. The last time I was here, I shared about I don't like to go to meetings. So I think God heard that. I know God heard that. And shortly after I shared that, I was put on a, <laughs> a board where I have to go to meetings even more. God has a sense of humor, okay? And so I was put on this board, and I have to go to Germany twice a year at this school that we have in Germany. And it's a very you know, well-known school. It's the second largest school in the Church of God. It's one of our most important schools. And I'm on this board, and we're sitting here because the president, you know, he retired, and we have to find a new president. It's a good job. It pays very, very well. And so we're trying to discover who's the best qualified to be this president. And so I'm sitting there thinking, who can we think of? Who can we think of? And then I felt the Holy Spirit poke me. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the Holy Spirit poke you. Some people say he whispers to them. Some people says he strokes them gently, that he prods them. He pokes me. And one day I'm going to write a book called The Holy Spirit Poked Me. All right? But he poked me and he said, Vance, won't you put your name in? And I said, because I don't want the job and I don't want to live in Germany. He said, why don't you put your name in there? And I said, I'll pray about it. I always think it's amazing how, as Christians, when God asks us to do something, we have to pray about it. But when we want to do it, no prayer needs to be involved because it surely is his will. And so for a month, I prayed. And during this time, the pruning started. And I realized that one of the things that I was doing was I had allowed my identity to get caught up in being a missionary. Now, my definition of the word missionary and many, many other Christians' word of the, very, of the word missionary are very different. I've studied missiology for 14 years. Mine's very, very narrow. And in my mind, and in my theology, and my missiology, if I had become president of this school, I would no longer be a missionary. Living in Germany, living overseas doesn't make me a missionary. A very specific task makes me a missionary, and I felt like I would no longer be a missionary. And I felt like God was asking me to give that up. And let me say this. I like being a missionary. I had allowed my identity. I mean, when I come back to America as a missionary, it's great. I never, ever pay for lunch. Very rarely do I get to ever play for golf. There's been times I have played golf by myself and someone paid for it. And I don't even know who it was. It's great. And when you go to churches and they tell you how great you are and how wonderful you are and they pat you on the back and they call you a hero. Now, I think that's going a little bit too far, but they call you that. It feels great to be a missionary. And I realized my whole identity had gotten caught up in what God had called me to do. Not who God had called me to be. God had called me to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, a disciple to be like him, not a missionary, to be a Christian first. And so I realized I had to give that up. And then a few months later, another job opportunity opened up. This one I really wanted, so I didn't pray about it at all. It was in America. Now let me say something. Satan's clever. At the time this job opportunity opened up, Carrie and I were about at the point where we'd had enough. Now, I know Denise and Kelly never experienced this feeling of you just feel like you've had enough and you just want to go and work at McDonald's or something. <laughs> but we just felt like we had enough. Ministry in the Middle East is hard. It's so hard. You don't ever know what's going to happen. It's, you have to be so patient, and Americans aren't good at patience. I mean, we're the only people in the world that will sit in front of a microwave and shout, hurry up. It's really, we just don't do very well with it, and we were so discouraged, and we were, you know, we were just getting so frustrated, and this job opportunity comes up in America, and then we thought, we've done enough. We've done this long enough. Now, let me say something in the kingdom of God. You've never done enough. You can never do enough. You can never serve long enough. You can never serve hard enough. You can never preach enough sermons, and you never preach them good enough. You can never share your faith. You can never love enough, but we let that thought come in our head. Also, like I said, we've been missionaries. We've lived outside the U.S. longer than we have in the U inside the U.S. My parents, I've missed most of their life. 
they're getting towards the end of it. I, I, I like, it would be so nice to spend the last few years around my family. And so I put my thing in, my, my application in, and then I realized God asked me, are you willing to give up what you want for what I want? Are you willing to give up your dreams? And then it turns out, even though I, I, I was very much expecting to be offered either one of those jobs or both of those jobs, and everyone was kind of sharing with me that that's probably what was going to happen, neither one of them. And you say, well, Vance, why would you even want them? Now, let me just say this. I am not a super spiritual person. I know missionaries are portrayed that way, like we walk on water and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't even like water. I live in the desert, all right? It only rains three days a year. But I want to do more for God. I want to do something great for God, not for my own pride, not so I can get my picture posted somewhere, not so I can be in a history book. I just want to do something for the one who done everything for me. I want to do something great for God. But the problem that I have, I want to figure out how to do it. And so I started wanting these other jobs because you know, work in the Middle East is so hard, God. It's so slow. It's, 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 it's so frustrating at times. If I could do this, I could do what you ask for me so much better. If I went to Germany, I could train all these people to be missionaries and pastors and evangelists, and you know, more people would go to the field, and it would be all great. Or if I could take this job in America, I could do all these great things for you and the same thing. And I felt like God said, Vance, why don't you just do what I've asked you to do? the way I've asked you to do it, and be content with doing it, not with the fruit that comes from it. You see, too many times in ministry, we take the joy in what we're doing for God in the fruit that comes from it. As a preacher, sometimes I'm guilty of the joy I take in preaching is how many people fills the altars when I get done. Or maybe if you're a Sunday school teacher, how many people actually show up for Sunday school? Or when you're evangelizing, how many people get saved? You're, sometimes I'm guilty of taking the joy in the fruit that comes from what I do than in what I do, the obedience of doing it. And then I realized that when I do that, I am stealing God's glory. When I take joy, if I preach at this sermon and I have an altar call and you come up or whatever, and I take joy in that, that's when I'm stealing God's glory. Why? Because I can't do that. If someone becomes a Christian, it ain't because I evangelized them in a perfect way. It's because the Holy Spirit of God drew them. I can plant and I can water, but I can't bring the increase. Only God can do that. And so when we take joy in the fruit of our service, then we are still in God's glory. It doesn't mean we don't rejoice when people get saved. It doesn't mean we don't rejoice when our classes are full or our churches are full, but we can't take joy in that moment. And what God was saying to me is take joy in what I have invited you to do with me in the kingdom of God. And I realized, and I had to even go through a time of repentance, even like right now, I am getting to speak on God's behalf. What a joy, what a privilege that God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, has invited me to speak for him. And so no matter what you've been asked to do, take joy in what you're doing, not the result. Because let me say this, and I mean this, and I mean this quite honestly. I don't care how much is in the offering. I really don't. Why? God is my provider. He may use you. He may use somebody else. I'm hoping one day he'll use a very rich shake in the Middle East. But it's his choice. He told me he will provide. He didn't tell me how he's going to do it. But I have to take joy. God has invited us as a family to live in the Middle East, in the heart of the Great Commission, in the heart of the part of the world where people have never heard the gospel, and participate with him in going to the broad path of destruction and letting them know there's another way that leads to life. What joy. You say, what if they don't turn around? I still will get to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. Do you notice that in that text, it doesn't say, well done, my good and fruitful servant, but my good and faithful servant? So I want to encourage you, no matter what you do in this church, no matter what you do in this community, take joy in doing it, that God is allowing you to do it. Don't take your joy in what happens when it's done. That's God's work, not yours. Take joy in serving 
not in the fruit that comes from it. He brings it, not you. As the American church, which you are a part of, I want to encourage you to give up, to sacrifice the same three things that Abraham has been, was asked to sacrifice, your identity. Now, let me say this again. I'm very proud to be an American. I've wore the uniform. I've fought for this country. I love my country. But I am not an American Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to be an American. I am fine with the color God made me. But I am not a white Christian. I am a Christian who happens to be white. I am very happy to be a man. Especially with three daughters, I realize I am very, very happy to be a man. I mean, three, three women in my life. I spend like half my life outside the bathroom waiting for someone to come out. But I am not a male Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to be a man. We have to take our identity in the one who died for us. Everywhere in the New Testament, it tells me to, I must deny myself. I must give up everything, including who I am, and to become who he wants us to be. And the American church, you have been called by God to become the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And I want to encourage you, don't worry about being Watts Bar Church. Be the body of Christ that he has planted in this community. Also, give up your dreams. Give up what you want for what he wants. You might want a big church. You might want you know, multiple places. You might want to have congregations. All, but what if that's not what he wants? You know, we always want to be respected. We always want to be accepted. We always want to have our comfort. But do we really want what God wants for us? Give up your plans. Because let let's be honest. When God hears our plans, he laughs. You know, we always come up with these great plans and these great strategies, and we say, God, please, let's have a prayer meeting, and God, come bless what we're doing. Where God has said, no, come and participate with me in what I'm doing. Now, let me say this when it comes to participating with God. When God has invited you, and in this community, he has invited you to join him in what he's doing. You just have to find out where it is. But let me just say this, you're not going to like where it is. Because let me say this, it's not going to be within the walls of this church. He's going to ask you to go out into the highways and the byways, into the places you don't want to go in order to share the gospel and work with him because that's where he is moving. God has taken me to a part of the world I didn't want to be in. I didn't want to go to. It's amazing to me, with my personality, the places that God has taken me. Let me give you an example. I grew up in the 80s. In the 80s, we didn't talk about socialism in a positive way. Okay? I was trained in the army to kill communists. <laughs> the first place God calls me, China, the largest communist country in the world. After 9-11, I tried to go back in the army. Okay, Where does God take me? The Middle East. And he didn't send me with a gun. He sent me with the word of God. God will take you where you don't want to go. But he's inviting you, come and work with me what I want you to do, the way I want you to do it, and be content in doing it. Now, I know in this church, I know there's got to be some of you who've discouraged. Maybe you taught a Sunday school class. Maybe you taught children. Maybe you kept the nursery. Maybe you were an usher. Maybe you played in the praise team, and you just felt like, you know, the people didn't worship enough. Nobody ever came to my Sunday school class. Nobody ever did this. Nobody ever responded. You were looking at the fruit. Don't take joy in that. Take joy in that the Father your heavenly Father, the creator of all things, has invited you to play on his behalf. He has invited you to teach his children. He has invited you to work amongst his people in any way. Take joy in that, not in what comes from it. Let him do that part. Because you know what? He's the only one who can. Sacrifice requires giving. Giving requires love. And when we love, there's no limit to what, we can, what God will do with it. God always does something great with sacrifice. I want to end with a story. There's a missionary family, I mean a family I know, Christian family. The man was Methodist, the woman was Pentecostal. They met, they got married, the man became Pentecostal. Uh, that seems to happen a lot. But they loved God. 
and they, 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 they were a very faithful couple, and they decided to have a family, and they had two sons. But when the wife was pregnant with the second son, there were a lot of complications, a lot of difficulties, a lot of medical issues. And the doctors told the woman that if you have this child, he will die. And more than likely, he will kill you too. And they strongly suggested to the woman that she have an abortion. But being a faithful follower of Christ, she said, there's no way. There's no way I can do that. I have to have this child, even if he kills me. She went through the birthing process and although it was, I mean, the pregnancy, and although it was very difficult, she had the child. He was premature, but perfectly healthy. They were so happy. And they promised God, we will raise these children to love and fear you. And they took the children to church every time the doors were open, every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday, every revival, every seminar, every meeting. They were the first ones there and the last ones to leave. And they not only taught their children about God at home at church, they taught their children about God at home, where it's most important. And they lived the Christian life in front of their children. And everything was going great until their youngest son got to the age of about 14. And at 14, their son began to drink. By the age of 15, he was an alcoholic. The parents were devastated. They're thinking, we did everything right. And he still went the wrong way. At the age of 15, he began to experiment with drugs, and by 16, he was a drug addict. And the more they prayed for their son, the worse he got. At the age of 16, he began to dabble in the occult. He would sacrifice animals, cut his own flesh, and basically worship the devil. Parents didn't know what to do. They prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and the more they prayed, the worse he got. They watched their son grow up full of anger, full of hatred, violent, multiple suicide attempts. And then one day, their son comes to them, and he tells his parents, he says, I'm going to go out, I'm going to get drunk, I'm going to get high, and this time I'm going to do it right, I'm going to take my own life. He said goodbye to his parents, and he left home. They ran to the bedroom. They began to cry out to God, began to pray, God, a prayer they had prayed so many times. Protect our son. Help our son. Don't let anything happen to him. But the mother come to a point in her prayer where she said later on that she lost all hope. And she said that I prayed a prayer that a mother can only pray when she has no more hope. She prayed, God, save my son even if it means he's got to die. Even if it means he has to die, I give him to you to save him. And she fell asleep. The next morning she woke up and she ran into her son's bedroom to make sure he was even alive, not knowing if a state trooper would be soon knocking on the door to say that he was dead. But there he lay, safe and sound, in his bed. Later that night, after another suicide attempt, her son gave his life to Jesus Christ. The parents were so happy. They were so joyful. They watched their son begin to grow in the faith. They watched him preach his first sermons. They watched him go out and do the work of an evangelist and share the gospel. And then he said he wanted to go to Bible school, and they helped him the best they could to get there. And then he tells them he's going to be a missionary. And one day he calls his mother and says, Mom, I've accepted a position, and as soon as I graduate, I'll be going to this country and you know, fulfill the call of God on my life. The mother, trying to be supportive, said, you know, son, I'm very proud of you. And she hung up the phone. And then she ran back to her bedroom and began to call out to God again. She said, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? You just gave me my son his life back. You just gave me my son back. Why are you taking him halfway around the world? Why are you taking him to a place in which Christians are hated, to a place in which they might put him in prison, and to a place in which he might be killed? Why are you taking my son from me? And she said she felt the Holy Spirit speak and say firmly but gently, he's not your son. Don't you remember? You gave him to me. And now I will use him for my glory. And from that moment, my mother has had complete peace about what I do. 
everything since that moment, everything for the last 28 years, every sermon I've preached, every person who's accepted the gospel, every person I've been able to encourage, every pastor I've been able to equip or missionary I've been able to train or anything I've done for the kingdom is because a little woman in Alabama took her worthless, useless trash of a son, put him on the altar, gave him to God. God did something with it. I can take no credit, none. And you think, well, how can I do that? How can I sacrifice my identity? How can I give up my dreams? How can I give up what I want, my plans for my life? I mean, how can I do what your mother did? How can I give up my son? How can I give up, you know, how can I give God my marriage or my children or my job or my financial situation or my health? How can I give God these things? How can I sacrifice this? There's only one answer. And it's found in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. On March 21st, 1992, I died, and Jesus came to life in me. The prayer my mother prayed, God, save my son, even if it means his death, is what happened. Because I died because of Christ. Now, I didn't do this in the first service. In fact, I never do this. But I'd like for you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I've almost never done this in a missionary service. But I feel the Holy Spirit leading me in a different way, and I have to be obedient. There are people here, I don't know what's going on in your life. I have no idea. Maybe you're in this same situation. Maybe it's a child that's out there in the world. Maybe it's a brother, maybe a sister, maybe a parent. I don't know. Maybe it's just a situation. Or maybe it's just something in yourself. Maybe your identity, maybe a dream, maybe a plan. And you know God is asking you to give it to him. You know God's asking you to give it up, but you don't want to. I'm going to give you the opportunity I know God is here. If you're willing, and don't do this out of peer pressure, don't do it for me, don't do it for any other reason, but you're willing to take whatever that is and give it to God, to sacrifice it, whether it's your identity, your dreams, your plans, or it's something like a son or a daughter or a marriage or a situation and you're really willing to sacrifice it to God and I want you to stand up where you are thank you again there's no pressure thank you thank you thank you thank you and I'm not going to draw this out in 25 years I've almost never ever done this I feel like God has sent me here not just to raise an offering, but to minister to his people, to nurture them with his word. So I'm going to pray for you. I'm not going to call you up front. I don't don't know the protocols of this church and every church I've been to is different, but I'm just going to pray for you. And even if you didn't have the courage to stand up, I'm still going to pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, so much for this church and what it's meant to us, this family and what it means to us. But you sent me here with a word and you've nudged me once more to do something I normally don't do in a missionary service. But I know there's people here, they're hurting. They're hanging on to things that they don't need to hang on to. And you want them to finally put it in your hands. Maybe it is their identity. Maybe they're clinging to that too much. Maybe it's some sort of dream. Maybe it's some sort of plan. Or maybe it's a lost son, a lost daughter. Maybe it's a marriage that's in trouble. Maybe it's a horrible financial situation. I don't know. I I don't have to know. You know. And I pray right now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ 
that you will give them the strength to lay it at your feet, to lay it on the altar and let you have it, to let you do with it what you want to do with it. Your will be done. You are King. You are Lord. But you are also Savior. You are also Redeemer. And I pray, Lord God, that you will take it. And if it means to them for them to deny themselves, it means to give up everything. That's what you've called us to do. But I pray that you'll give them the strength to do it. In Jesus' name, I pray. And we can't go back. Once it's laid on the altar, you can't take it back. But give it to God. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But give it to God. And his will be done. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.